Good morning, church. Did you see the mountains this morning? Weren't they beautiful? You guys don't know. You were still sleeping. They were nice. Like right at the crack of dawn, they were just beautiful. And uh, I sure enjoyed it. Uh, If you'd open your Bibles, we are in uh, Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 2. We've just got seven verses today. Uh, But let's go before the Lord and ask for his help with this. Father, we've just begun to worship. Uh, We started in song. We worship you now by bringing our lives before the authority of your word. Uh, Father, I don't have authority. Your word has authority. Your spirit has authority. And we lay ourselves before your living word and your living Holy Spirit. And we ask that we would be taught by you. Uh, So teach us, Lord, from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Most of you know that I grew up in Southern California. And... uh, and as many of you have reminded me, it's not a bad place to be from, right? Uh, in 1992, uh, I was in high school, and now some of you are doing some mental math, so I'll just, I had a birthday yesterday, I turned 42, so I'm 42, that's how old I am, thank you. It's starting to hurt a little bit each year now. Um, but in 1992, I was still in high school in Southern California. And one of the things that I remember that particular year uh, was the eruption of the Rodney King riot, if you remember that, uh, where for six days the city of Los Angeles really turned on itself, so to speak, and uh, in reaction to the outcome of the court case uh, related to Rodney King's arrest and beating, which had been captured on film, and the acquittal of the officers involved. And one of the sort of infamous lines that Rodney King himself spoke during that turmoil, if you remember it was, can't we all just get along? And I remember hearing that and thinking, oh, I don't know, that seems a little trite in light of what all's going on here. There was a riot where 63 people were killed. 2,300 were injured, 12,000 were arrested, a billion dollars of damage to the city, and thousands of structures burned to the ground. And so the question, can't we all just get along, it seemed a little thin, to be honest, although you could see that he was really truly grieved by the melee that we were all watching and experiencing and realizing that his life was a big part of that and he was at the center. Um, I remember watching that as a high schooler and sort of, It was really the first time in my life where I felt thrust into some of the uh, race relationship and the race tensions that were going on at the time. And I just was naive about the tension that others felt. And I remember the newscasters relating relating this incident back to the Watts riot of the 60s, which, of course, I had no memory of. And I realized this has been an ongoing problem. Amazingly to me now, you know, race struggles continue to be a problem in our country. And we've seen that in the last few years with the Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter movements. At least two different groups expressing their frustration, their anger about feeling mistreated, being mistreated, being disrespected, and each one appealing uh, to the other for justice and decency. And I try to listen to Martin Luther King's um, speech every year. I have a dream. And listening to Dr. King again this year, I was struck by two things, which seems like invariably this is what I'm struck by. Number one, we've come a long way in race relationships in our country. And number two, we have a long way to go. And I feel that way every time I listen to it. 
But we have not only ongoing problems in our nation with race relationships, we have it now uh, with gender conflict. Do we not? I mean, if I can simply pose the question, what does it mean to be male and what does it mean to be female? What is masculinity? What is femininity? Just throw that out in your next, you know, public setting, wherever you might be, and see where that goes. Uh, We see it with the same-sex marriage. We see it with the transgender trend. And then recently, we're finding, uh, I think, shocking to all of us, or at least to me, and maybe I'm the only naive one here with the Me Too movement, I am shocked to see how pervasive um, sexual abuse and sexual harassment is experienced by women in our country. And if I could just be honest, I would say I didn't know it was that pervasive. I didn't know. So we have racial tensions. We have gender conflicts. So let's not leave out the political scene either because that's just one more layer we can throw on, right? If we kind of take a snapshot of this moment in our nation, we can also see that it seems like politically we are in a stalemate of ideologies, right? Two, a two-party system, each one deeply entrenched, really just political polarization. And that's what it feels like. It feels like we're just this electric motor that's got forces acting upon it in opposite directions, and we're just kind of seized up trying to do something. And if anything does happen, it's almost immediately met by lawsuits, right? Oh, how dare you? You enacted something. Now we're going to sue you over it. And it just seems like we are missing completely any sense of diplomacy, respectful persuasion, reasonable compromise, listening, civility, and just governing for the common good. So racial tensions, gender conflicts, and political polarization. We live in a world, or at least a nation, that is just teeming with conflict, right? You guys feel that? Am I the only one here? Am I just fabricating these things? But surely the church is different, right? Surely the church is a place where peace and harmony abound and where everybody just gets along, as Rodney King would have us, and everybody's just nice. And the reason you all chuckle about this is because you know that the church is not immune from these conflicts. We have our own conflicts, and these same conflicts that are out there nationally find their way into the church. We have our own feuds. We have our own battles. We have our own wounds. We have our own ongoing struggles. And if you've spent any time in any church, you know that those things are the case. Uh, They can be big. They can be painful. And sometimes they can just be petty, right? Chuck Swindoll tells the story. I wish I had his voice. (laughs) Mildred, the church gossip and self-appointed monitor of the church morals, kept sticking her nose in other people's business. Several other members did not approve of Mildred's extracurricular activities, but they feared her enough to at least maintain their distance and their silence. She made a mistake, however, when she accused George, a brand new member, of being an alcoholic after seeing his old truck parked outside the town's only bar one afternoon. And she emphatically told George and several others that everyone seeing it there would know what he was doing. George, a man of few words, stared at her for just a moment, turned and walked away. He didn't explain anything. He didn't defend himself or even deny. He just walked away. But later that evening, George quietly parked his pickup out front of Mildred's house. (laughs) 
and walked home and left it there all night. I like George. I, I wish we had more Georges and less Mildreds. Conflict is in the church because we have people in the church. And you and I are people. We are persons. We are flawed. We are humans. And we are trying to recover the humanity that God intended for us. As we encounter the fourth chapter of Philippians, we see that the church of Philippi was no different than we are. They had national issues. They had international issues. They had conflict outside the church. They had conflict within the church. Even the existence of Philippi as a city itself was actually a result of a conflict. A group of people had risen up against Rome. They rebelled. They, they resisted the authority. And basically, when they lost, Rome said, what are we going to do with these folks? And they gave them their own city, their own colony, made them immune from basically the government and from taxations and sort of pacified them with this place. That's how Philippi got there. On top of that, they had political skirmishes. They had, they had civil wars. And apparently... These kinds of conflicts found their way into the church, even between some of the godliest members in the church. And so as we open chapter 4 and verse 2, Paul names names. He tells us about the Mildred and the George of the church of Philippi. He starts in verse 2, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. How would you like to have been mentioned in the scriptures for your feud? You know, not just a faithful guy or a faithful gal or somebody who had done something or served the church, but no, someone who was feuding in the church. He goes on in verse 3, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So apparently these two gals had gotten sideways with one another. And we're not told what the issue was. Aren't you curious? I am. I want to know. Inquiring minds want to know. But we're not told. What we are told, the message that goes out for this church and for all churches, is to be of the same mind in the Lord. Uh, That, for me, sort of prompts the question, what does it mean to be of the same mind in the Lord? Now, a variety of different translations, translations handle this phrase differently. The King James in the 2011 version of the NIV, which I'm preaching from this morning, translated just as I've said, be of the same mind in the Lord. The 1984 translation of the NIV, the ESV, and the NET say, agree in the Lord. And the NAS, the New American Standard, is a little bit of an outlier. It translates it, live in harmony, again, in the Lord. What is interesting to me, what is consistent and explicit within each of the translations is the repeated phrase, in the Lord. In the Lord. In other words, this agreement, this same-mindedness, this harmony of life that we're exhorted to is possible because of our common position in Christ. Because of what the Lord has achieved for us. And that is a privilege that Christians enjoy that sometimes we forget to remember. If I could say it that way. It's a privilege we enjoy that the world does not have. There, are, there is affinity, there is common ground within the world and within its relationships to one another, but it's thinner than what we enjoy as Christians. Just think about it. You might have some common ground, sort of, or the, the world might have some common ground with each other on things like an ethnic background, a particular region of the country that you're from, your political party, 
your alma mater, what you studied in school. Maybe you're in the same vocational field. Maybe you have the same hobbies. I've seen, I seem to talk with fellows every, every Sunday about hunting after church, you know, but both before and after. And so these are commonalities, and, and they create a certain affinity one to another, but it's thin compared to the robustness of the common ground that we have in Christ Jesus. It's thin. The fact that we are commonly in the Lord together means that we have a common creator, and we know this, and that we know that we have a common savior, and we know that we have been called to a common mission. And this one, I hope, really gets you, that we have in common within us the same spirit of God. And I I want you to think about that for a moment. You don't have your own Holy Spirit and then me have mine. But the same Holy Spirit of God who exists eternally, the same person, Holy Spirit, indwells all of us. That is amazing, and that is amazing common ground. That is amazing, I don't even know what to call it, that is an amazing experience that we share together. And we will spend eternity together. And some of you, I know, are going, oh boy, Eric's going to be around for eternity, right? Amy told me the funniest thing a couple weeks back. And um, she said, you know, it occurred to me, I'm going to be listening to you my whole life. (laughs) That's the burden of the pastor's wife. Like, I'm going to be probably the last preacher she knows, right? You know, she's got to listen to me her whole life. It's brutal. We will spend eternity together. And we are sons and daughters of God, and therefore brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is the common ground that we enjoy as Christians, and it is more robust than any kind of common ground that anybody in the world enjoys with one another. Uh, You guys know that recently I had a chance to go back to Boston and to just outside of Boston in Southboro. There's a study fellowship, Christian study fellowship center there called Labrie, and it was just a rich time for me personally. And uh, my, my friend Andrew Chapman was there as well. He went a little bit ahead of me. So we overlapped our time. And uh, he was, it was his first experience there. So when I arrived and encountered him, I was really eager to say, oh, how are you enjoying it? You know, how, how is it hitting you? And he said something really wonderful. He says, you know, I've only, it only took me like two hours of being here to realize that I love these people. And I think all of us can, that resonates with us because we know we've been in those situations where we've arrived at a fellowship and we've encountered other believers and we realize, I don't know like anything about you. We're not from anywhere, the near, anywhere near the same kind of place and yet there is a commonality and an affinity and an affection for one another that exists because we are brothers and sisters in Christ and it transcends so many other things. It is really rich. The people that we were there with were from Tennessee, Georgia, Washington, Australia, Alaska, New Hampshire, California, and Alabama. What do we have in common? Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit within us. And it was rich. Sometimes, however, I think we have to call this reality the mind of this common ground that we have in the Lord because of the stresses and the pressures and the tensions of the day. Because those things can crowd out the reality that is there. But this common ground that we are in Christ together means some really wonderful things. It means that we can have unity without uniformity. And it means that we can have diversity without division. It means recognizing that we were made by him and we were made for him. 
that we were saved by him and we were saved for him and that we have been called to serve his kingdom and to surrender our own. That is robust common ground. That's what it means to be like-minded in the Lord because of our common position in Christ. So these poor ladies, Iodia and Syntyche, unfortunately have gotten sideways with one another. They're named in Scripture for it, but they're also named for their hard work contending for the gospel alongside the Apostle Paul and others. And to help them, to get them on track with one another, Paul gives what I think is a really provocative exhortation to the body. He says, help them. You all, you the body of Christ, help them. This, this phrase here, my true companion here, is in reference to the church, not to some single individual. It's to the church. You all, come alongside and help these gals become of the same mind in the Lord. Remind them of what they know to be true. And I think this is a really powerful thing that the, that the passage actually teaches us here. It shows us that the church family protects its own unity. Uh, the word that is used here for my true companion or in other translations, yoke fellow, uh, suzoge, it means to be linked up, yoked together, tied together, in the traces together. If this were written to the Bethelonians, right, you know, not the Philippians, but the Bethelonians, probably we would find, you know, like a dog sledding term here. You know, being in the traces together, yoked together, pulling together. We might be called, you know, wheel dogs or something like that. You're pulling together on this thing. And I think what's significant about it is really the way that the body of Christ is dignified, each person, each individual in the church Because they're called to do this. We recognize the priesthood of believers here. That the responsibility for protecting the unity of the church doesn't just go to the elders or to the deacons or to the pastors or whatever, but it goes to the priesthood of believers to all y'all, as the Southerners would say it. It's us. We have this responsibility together, and I think that is an incredibly dignifying expectation that the Apostle Paul has of the body of Christ. I've said this before, we don't go to the church, we are the church, any more than we don't go to family, we are the family, right? Each person responsible for the family of God and for its unity, and that is a very dignifying and wonderful thing that we have been called to. Let me get to some of the practical ways that the work of the people for unity in the church is, is carried out. Uh, speaking well of one another. A lost art in our day and age. Where, you know, whole shows are devoted to tearing each other apart. But the church is called to speak well of one another. Not gossiping and slandering. How easy is it to pass along a little tidbit of information that is condemning? Hold on to it. Don't spread it. Don't pass it along. Giving others the benefit of the doubt. When something occurs and it's frustrating, it's offensive, say, hey, listen, they're probably not trying to needle me here. They're probably not aiming right at me. I'm going to practice a little maturity and resilience here, and I'm going to choose not to be offended by this and assume that they have the best interests in mind for me. I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. Be willing to overlook an offense if you can. When you can't, be sure to go to somebody. And confront them and say lovingly, listen, I just want to get square with you, but this occurred, so keep short accounts. 
As Matthew 18 tells us, go to your brother, go to your sister and confront the issue. At times, we will have to practice mediation for others. As the church is called to do here for Iodia and Syntyche, help them. Sit in a conversation between two people who maybe are sideways with one another. Urge other people that you know are conflicted with somebody. Urge them to pursue peaceful resolution. Be quick to offer our repentance. Hey, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that that hit you that way. I didn't know that was the case. And be generous with robust forgiveness that you offer. These are the practices of the family of God to protect and promote the unity of the church as they are in the Lord together. And Francis Schaeffer, I think, says really provocatively just what is at stake when we do this in his book, The Mark of a Christian, which I've listed in your notes there. Just a short, pithy book that's really encouraging. But he tells us what's at stake here when he says that we must never forget that the final apologetic which Jesus gives to the world is the observable love of true Christian for true Christian. So that's shocking when you think of what's at stake. In other words, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, of all of the evidence that's out there, of all the apologetics values that are out there, as you consider the the truthfulness of the Christian faith, just look at the loving relationships of Christians for each other and that will verify whether or not the gospel is true. Those, those, that's Jesus' teaching. Francis Schaeffer has just put it in a really pithy way. They will know we are Christians by our love, is what Christ has told us. So that's what's at stake. Recognize that we are co-workers for the Lord. Again, this is just a really a great phrase that I think helps us to remember, hey, we're not here to establish our own kingdom, but we've been called to his mission and we serve him and we serve him together. It's about him. And when we get our, our eyes and our mind off of him and we get it focused on us, that's when the trouble comes. And I think we, we have a, a habit of doing this in the lives of others too. When conflict comes up, when an issue happens, when offense occurs, we have a habit of maybe looking at that person or that situation and we label them. And that's kind of how we can adjust to this. And so we tell them, we, we maybe just tell ourselves something like, well, that person's crazy. They're just an idiot. They're clueless. Well, they're just a liberal. They're a conservative. They're just a gun lover. They're just, a, you know, fill in the gap. You see how this goes. And here's, here's why we do this. You know why we do it? Because if I can label you, then I don't have to treat you as a person. I'm dehumanizing you. I'm making you into a position. I'm making you into a faceless, nameless group that I'm not responsible for. Labels allow us to do that. Paul would have us to see that we are yoke fellows in the Lord. To see one another as persons. We have to remember that that person who offends us, who has hurt us, who drives us crazy or whatever is a person with a story, with their own hurts and wounds, with their own fears, with their own hopes, with their own life that may not be going the way that they want it to presently. We can't dehumanize people with labels. And so Paul gives us this image. We're yoked together, pulling together in the common direction for the Lord. Verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. If you've been following with us in this book of Philippians, you know how many times Paul has come back to this and repeated himself. He means it. This is, a, this is a, uh, something that guards our soul. I'll get into it more in a minute here. Verse 5, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So the instruction here, again, is to rejoice in the Lord. Paul continues to challenge the Christian about where your focus, where your eyes and where your mind is, right? Be of the same mind in the Lord, and here, rejoice in the Lord. He's constantly pulling our perspective back to this, this reality. Uh, A number of years ago, I was learning to ride motorcycles and enjoyed that for a little while in Fairbanks. I've put it aside for a season but when I started riding motorcycles, I thought, I need a class. I need, I need to be taught how to do this. And so I took a class here in town uh, with Pastor Keith, which was really fun. And one of the things that I remember from this class is the instruction about um, how to handle potholes. And do we have any motorcyclists here? Can I see hands? Just as, okay, like five of you. Okay, this will matter for five of you. Cool. <laughs> I need you guys to nod, you know, an affirmative as I go through this so people will believe me. What is amazing when you're riding a motorcycle is your bike will go wherever you're looking. So if you're on the road and you see a pothole and you're looking at the pothole and you think, boy, I really don't want to hit that. That's a big pothole. That could really be trouble. You're doomed. You're going to drive right into that thing. You will. You don't want to. You're like, why am I going into the pothole? Why? Because you're looking at it. And what you have to train yourself to do is to see it and go, oops, and then imagine the path around it. Because where your eyes go, your head goes. Where your head goes, your body goes. Where your body goes, your bike goes. And so you have to lift your gaze and look around and track around it. It was an amazing lesson uh, to pick up with motorcycling, but the same thing is true in life. And this is what Paul is doing. He's taking our attention off of these relational potholes that are in front of us. He's saying, no, you have to see the path around this. You have to recognize and pursue a common mind in the Lord. You have to rejoice in the Lord. You have to see God high and lifted up. You have to be called back to your rejoicing in him. You have to see your position in Christ. You have to see the mission that you've been called to, which is his kingdom and not your own. Otherwise, if we keep our head down and we see these relational things going on, all we're going to do is drive right into those relational potholes again and again and again. So we have to change our perspective here. Paul goes on to tell us that the natural byproduct of one who does this, one who rejoices in the Lord, is gentleness. Gentleness should be evident for those in Christ. Now, I don't think it's obvious in in the translation that I'm using today. Verses 5 and 6 uh, Paul's, there's an interesting wordplay going on here, and it's more apparent in some of the other translations, uh, the ESV, King James, and NAS. Essentially what Paul is doing is he starts, he kind of brackets this teaching here by saying, let your gentleness be known to all. And then as he ends this section in verse 6, let your requests be known to God. And then he kind of brackets that section, but with that wordplay, let this be known to all, gentleness, but let your requests be known to God. And I think what he's doing is tapping into sort of the human experience. We can all relate to this. When we're told no, or when we've applied for something and we didn't get what we wanted, the job goes to someone else, the plans have changed, trouble comes, hopes are dashed. I think the temptation for all of us is to, you know, roll up our sleeves and get to work 
and we're going to fix this thing, and we start wrestling and writhing with it the way that it is. We can become agitated and angry and aggressive as we take matters into our own hands. And in contrast to that, I think Paul is saying, that's the absence of the gentleness he's after here. The gentleness is recognizing the Lord is still in control. God is still good. He is still sovereign. I can, I can hear the words no and accept it and believe that the Lord is good. I can be declined and know that this is, he is in sovereign control. I can know that even what happens to me, if I don't like it and don't want it, that it is something that God could have spared from me if he wanted to. But even in this, he is at work. Romans 8.32 tells us, For he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? He knows what's best for us, and he will absolutely do it, even when that thing comes along that we didn't want. God is still at work. He is still good. And for those who are trusting in the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord, they can let that gentleness and peace be known to all, even while they take their frustrations and disappointments to the Lord in prayer. See how that works? That's how he's bracketing those two things. And he goes on to talk about the nearness of God. And I think this also is... There's a little bit of debate on what Paul means by nearness. Uh, I'm going to state it this way. Uh, God is near. Act like it. Some scholars think that what Paul, in fact, I would tell you the majority, and I'm, so I'm a little bit of a, an outlier here, I'll tell you that. But the majority of scholars look at this word nearness and they think that Paul is talking about the return of the Lord. They, so they see this as an eschatological thing. But as I look at the text, you've got to go back to chapter 3 to see anywhere Paul's talking about the return of the Lord. What it seems to me here he's talking about is the presence and the activity of the Lord. So nearness can either be proximity or temporal. It can either be about God's imminent work or about something that's happening soon. Does that make sense? So nearness either in closeness or in close time. So either is possible and neither is wrong theologically, but I think what he's saying here is that you can relax, be at peace, knowing that God is near and he is at work. Otherwise, it would be, hey, God is coming back soon, so act gentle. That's weird. But instead, I think what he's saying is, don't get all wound up about these things going on that are disappointing because God is near present, at work, engaged, knowing, concerned, involved. He's not too busy for us. He's not otherwise engaged. He's interested in the matters that concern us in the here and now. He is near. And because he is near, we can have this gentleness of response in our earthly life, and yet this concerted prayer about what concerns us. And this is the same kind of instruction that Jesus gave when he talked about worrying, right? If you think about Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, just a great passage. Any, any of you worriers out there, you know this passage because you come back to it. You tether to this. And think about what Jesus said as he was addressing worriers. He said, hey, look at the lilies of the field. Look at the birds of the air. God clothes these and he feeds these. He sustains these things, and, and, and a person can simply look to the natural processes of the world and realize that God is in a sustaining way caring for even the lilies and the birds. So what are you worried about? 
And what can you do with your worry? So Jesus gives the same kind of instruction here. Uh, We're going to get a chance to see this, hopefully in a couple of weeks, not months. But in a couple of weeks, the irises will pop through the ground again, right? And those amazing purple flowers will start to bloom. And the black-capped chickadees will return to our yards in more active ways. And the red poles, right? And you look around and you see these things and you can think, where have you guys been? (laughs) But they have been here through the cold and through the harshness of the winter and God sustains them. And they come back as a testimony to the faithfulness of God. Jesus tells us to look to those things to be reminded of his care and his control. And I think Paul is doing the same thing when he encourages us that the Lord is near, that he is near, active, and involved and engaged. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, Let me say it this way. Going to God in prayer will guard our hearts. And this word guard here is a military word. Uh, So if I could add a little emphasis to it, I might say it this way. It protects our hearts, defends our hearts, barricades our hearts, sets up a perimeter and a shield around our hearts. This is what comes from taking things to the Lord in prayer and receiving the peace of God in doing so. Uh, Let me say it another way. Uh, Worry is misdirected prayer. Worry is hijacking the prayers and the petitions that ought to have gone to the Lord and instead we've taken them to ourselves. Uh, Worry is a way of saying, uh, hey God, hold my drink. I got this. (laughs) Right? I got this one. And we just wrangle it and wrestle with it and we're going to take it into our own hands and make it go our own way. But worry is misdirected prayer. It is prayer turned inward instead of turned outward to the Lord. And I would tell you that I think the single greatest thing you can do uh, for those of you who are warriors is to increase your prayerfulness. Uh, There's a great character in the scriptures in the Old Testament in Genesis, Jacob. I I hardly know why he is called one of the, you know, patriarchs or the, you know, in the hall of faith or all of this. This guy's a scoundrel. Jacob's a scoundrel. And he is known as a trickster and a huckster He tricks uh, his father out of his brother's birthright and his blessing and on and on and on. And he gets a little bit of his own medicine. But if there was ever one in the scripture who was a conniver and a manipulator and one who said, I'm going to take matters into my own hands, it's Jacob. At the end of his life, there's this really beautiful moment where it seems as though he's come finally to a point of learning. And he just very simply stated, he rests upon his staff and he worships the Lord. Jacob, the huckster, the hustler, had become a truster in God. And he learned to just sit and rest and to know that God is good and that God is in control. Um, Let's move on to verse 8 here. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, 
Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul calls upon the church here to just think about these good things. I need a little more help than that. Uh, I, I feel like I have difficulty, if you tell me just to think about a thing, you know, I have difficulty just getting there, particularly when, you, when, when I'm called to think about good things. Uh, so I'm going to try to put a little edge to this. I think what we need to do is bring it to mind. It's a discipline. It's an effort. It's a challenge to do so. I, I could be wrong about this, but I feel like there are more strains and pressures that we are forced to contend with in our day and age than in any other time in history before us. Now, let me say this. I think life was hard on every page of the scripture and in every epoch of time, but I can't think of a period in time where we were forced to hold in our minds as much information as we are right now. The information age makes the entire world and all of its troubles immediately available to us and constantly downloaded at us. So we hold more, I would say. And sometimes it just feels like your brain's going to explode. And so I feel like we can't just say, yeah, think about that. But almost like, no, go looking for these good things. Find them, search for them, mine for them, unearth them, extract it, surface it, raise it up, put it in the front of your mind, hold it in the front of your mind. I feel like it takes that level of exertion in my own life. Because those good and beautiful things which are out there are buried under a pile of rubble of the information that comes flying at us, right? Technology, I think, has caused us to simply hold on to more than we were meant to. And we have to sometimes reduce the significance of some things to mere trivia so we can just survive, right? In other words, we're forced to hear about the missile deal between China and Pakistan, and a package bomber in Austin, Texas, and the erratic stock market. And, and at the same time, we're hearing these scary kinds of things. Then we get the text message on our phone that says, we're near to go over our data limits again, and we're going to be charged 15 bucks. What? And all of this just comes flying at us. I think, unfortunately, for most of us, our intake of worrisome information drastically outweighs our discipline to rejoice in the Lord. And that's the problem. We have to discipline ourselves to rejoice in the Lord and to call to mind what is good and to see it and to focus on that. Let me give you some practical suggestions on how I think we can all improve in this. Um, consider taking Facebook off your phone. I'm not, I know I got a really funny look on this side of the room. It was awesome. Big eyes. What? <laughs> that was awesome. I, I'm not villainizing Facebook or anything. I think it's, honestly, I think it's a utility of our age. Do with it what you will. But if you put it on your phone, it's constantly chirping at you, constantly, all day long, telling you, look at me, look at me, look at me, look how bad it is, look how bad the world is, look again, and it's your friends, and they think some of it's good, and it just beats you all day long. So use, use the utility, but just keep it on your computer. Go once a day, and then you're done. Spare yourself the stress and the pressure. Just consider it. Uh, be cautious about your news feeds and what you allow to come in. I'll remind you what you already know. The different news feeds that are out there, they're not singly committed to telling the news as it is. That's maybe an understatement. 
They're trying to sell you the commodity of their services, which means they have to sensationalize the news or get there first, whether it's accurate or not. And all of that is captured by the good old slogan, if it bleeds, it leads, right? So what we get all the time is this sensational news. It's coming at us and it just weighs us down. Understand, I'm not advocating for ignorance here. I'm not just saying stick your head in the sand and be unaware of what's going on in the world. What I'm advocating for is disciplined engagement. You can't hold all of this information and assign a right value to it. You have to be human. And so sometimes you have to curb what's possible to know so that you can deal with it in responsible ways. Another thing I would tell you is practice silence in your car. It's one of the few sanctuaries left in the world. Uh, when I was a student in, um, at Biola uh, back in California uh, on weekends, I had taken a job at home, and I had about an hour and a half drive between home and going back to school. So on Sunday nights, I would finish my work at the church with the youth group, and I would get in my little blue truck, and I would drive down the Cajon Pass uh, down to Biola. And there was this stretch on the Cajon Pass where the radio was, uh, reception was terrible. And it was so fuzzy, I'd get annoyed, and I'd just turn it off. So I'd have about this 25, 30-minute stretch where, like, oh, at first it was an annoyance, and then I tolerated it, and then I liked it, and then I looked forward to it, and finally I started saying, I'm just going to take the whole time. I get in my truck, I'm going to turn it on, I'm going to drive in silence back to school. And, and it was like this undiscovered, unintention, or unintentional discovery that I really enjoyed what became a sanctuary for me in the cab of my pickup truck. Space of quiet to pray, to pray through what had happened in the week of ministry or the weekend of ministry at home and to pray about the week ahead of me and what God was doing in my own heart to talk to him and to listen and to see what he was bringing to mind. And it was really sweet. Maybe you only get a 15-minute drive in, but take it. Lord, I'm coming before you, and I'm not going to listen to whatever it is, whatever it is. Um, one of the things my wife does, I would like to say that this is my practice. It isn't yet, still growing, but something my wife has done really well and has mastered, I think, is before she goes to bed and when she wakes up in the morning, uh, she spends time in the Psalms. Just a couple of Psalms before bed and a couple of Psalms before even getting out of bed. And I think she would tell you it just has a way of helping her to see the world as the Lord sees it and to be prayerful about it. To change her, her perspective, to change the lens that she's looking at things and to guard her heart. Paul says, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. There's a great turn of phrase here because earlier he talks about giving our petitions to the Lord, and that the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds. But now he tells us not just the peace of God as a force for coming down from him, but the God of peace will be with us, which is better than just getting the thing. Now we get the person. The God of peace will be with us. He will guard our hearts. He will be with us. This whole passage has everything to do with Focusing our minds and where they ought to be. Uh, the age that we live in, more than any other, wants to take our minds and throw it a million directions, more than we can possibly handle. But Paul would have us be of the same mind in the Lord. To, as a way of discipline, rejoice in the Lord to make that even possible. And finally, to be disciplined in bringing to mind what is good 
And as we do that, we will find that the God of peace is with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We find it is timeless, though it speaks to the Philippians in their day and age, and it speaks to Iodia and Syntyche in their little feud. It speaks to us with what concerns us today, and we are thankful. Lord, help us to be disciplined in our minds, to be of the same mind in the Lord as a church, protecting the unity here. Help us to rejoice in you and to be disciplined about it. God, we want your peace, and we want you. So help us to do these things well, that we might experience the joy of unity and peace with God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.